with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Jessica Leahy, author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Leahy's book is a comprehensive resource that parents and educators can use to prevent substance abuse in children. According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, teen drug addiction is the nation's largest preventable and costly health problem. Despite the existence of proven preventive strategies, Nine out of 10 adults with substance use disorder report they begin drinking and taking drugs before age 18. For over 20 years, Leahy has taught every grade from 6 to 12 in both public and private schools, spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont, and serves as a prevention and recovery coach at SANA, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont. She is also the author of New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed, and the co-host of the Am Writing Podcast. Welcome, Jessica Leahy, to the Girls That Create Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I want to start off with what inspired you to write The Addiction Inoculation? What made you think that this book was needed in the world? I was a teacher for 20 years, and during that 20 years, my drinking just sort of started to ramp up. I um, actually was born to a family with alcoholism, a drug addiction. We actually refer to this now as substance use disorder and people with substance use disorder as opposed to like addict, alcoholic, that kind of thing. I use the word alcoholic for myself, but when I'm referring to other people, I use the person first language. So I grew up in a family with an alcoholic and I grew up in a larger extended family with lots of people with substance use disorder. And so did my husband. Early on, I remember in our marriage, my husband even saying, you know, we'll keep an eye on each other because we've got the genetics all sort of loaded up for this and happy to talk about how that figures in later if you want. So when I eventually did develop substance use disorder later than I expected, I sort of thought once I got out of my adolescence, I'd be in the clear, but I developed it after I had kids. And there's lots of reasons for that. And I can't point to one moment where I said, oh yeah, that's where I spun out of control. By the time I hit 2013, I knew I was in pretty big trouble. I knew if I kept going, I'd end up divorced, fired, you know, all these things. I was teaching middle school at the time. I had just sold The Gift of Failure, my first book, and I knew, and everyone around me knew, <laughs> I think, that I couldn't continue to drink and and write that book. I just it was like the opportunity. It was like my break. It was my big break as a writer. And I love being a teacher. But I have since the day you know I could write. I always wanted to be a writer. So on June seventh, twenty thirteen, when I got blackout drunk at my mom's birthday party, and my father actually was the one who intervened on me the next morning and said, "I know what an alcoholic looks like, and you're an alcoholic." And so as soon as I was able to sort of get my arms around that and got some sobriety under my belt, some days under my belt, my thought went to my kids. And about a year into my sobriety, I uh, started teaching at a rehab for adolescents in eastern Vermont. 
So between my own kids and trying to figure out if I am part of this intergenerational cycle that just keeps churning on and on and on, how on earth can I have the best possible shot at making this end with me? I don't want my kids to have to go through what I went through or even worse. I know lots of people have lost children to substance use disorder. At the same time, I'm also looking at my students and I'm like, how did they end up here? You know, some of it was obvious, some of it wasn't. And so I wanted to, I needed one source for sort of best parenting, best practices, education, best practices. And I just couldn't find what I needed. And, you know, I have the coolest job in the world, which is to get curious about something and then write about it. And it took me about a year even to craft the proposal for this book because I had so much learning to do. So it took me a couple of years to get this book out into the world. And I love the research. So it was fine with me. So that's sort of where this book came from. And it's, I like to think of it as a best practices for anyone in education, anyone mentoring children, anyone parenting children, anyone caregiving children for all of the things that when you look at the research really do affect kids' risk for developing substance use disorder and the things that we can do for them that actually offer some protection as opposed to, you know, myths and hope fingers crossed and magical thinking and that sort of stuff. The research I found really helpful because I'm a child of the 80s and 90s and I think we were just kind of told just don't do it. I'm thinking yeah. of the commercial with the egg and it was just like this is your brain on drugs and yep. don't and that was the end of the conversation. The research you've kind of found out that's not the best approach because Kids like to understand why, and actually parents should also understand why. I wanted to talk about brain development. So why should the age of 25 be the birthday all parents celebrate? More than 16, more than, <laughs> more than 21. Why is 25 the magical birthday? You know, we have so much amazing research that is available to us now because we can actually look at the human brain as it's functioning. And so really, it's only been this generation that we have this ability to say, oh my gosh, wait, we used to think that, you know, the brain was done developing at age 10, but that only meant because the brain was at its adult size. But all the adulting parts of the brain are so late to come online. They're, they're there, but they're not really hooked up in any functional way. And our brains develop from the bottom up. So from puberty until around 25, it is sort of uh, the outside of the, the outer part of the safety zone kind of thing where the brain is developing in a way that it is exquisitely uniquely sensitive to outside interference and you know zero to two is part of that as well as as is gestation so things that might be a moderate risk for an adult in a fully formed you know everything's connected kind of brain can be much higher risk in an adolescent brain simply because there is so much development going on in the brain that needs to happen unimpeded and many of the chemicals that are involved in substance use can interfere with that development, can, you know, monopolize the receptors so that the chemicals we create naturally in our bodies have no place to hook on to. And some of them, we don't even fully understand what they're doing there and why we have receptors for them. But we do know, for example, endogenous cannabinoids, the stuff that makes you high in marijuana, we have endogenous cannabinoids in our body. And we're still not fully clear on what it does, but we do know that the number of receptors we have for that stuff are at their peak during gestation and during these periods of huge development in the brain. So when we glom it up with 
the preferentially selected, you know, chemical ones that we bring in from outside of our body, what does that mean? You know, there's all kinds of questions that we're still in the process of figuring out answers to. But what we do know for sure is that addictive substances are far more harmful in the developing brain than in a fully developed brain. We know that the older a kid is when they first try an addictive substance, the lower their lifelong risk of substance use disorder. So if you have an eighth grader, their risk for substance use disorder over their lifetime, if they try alcohol, let's say, is approaches 50%. But if we can get them to, you know, 10th grade, it goes down by more than half. And if we can get them to 18, or sorry, yeah, to, it, to uh, 21, we know it gets even lower than that. So that's really important. So we need to make sure their brains can develop the way they're supposed to before that door kind of closes. And it doesn't close all the way, but it really does close most of the way on brain development in the mid-20s and that we can keep their lifelong risk for substance use disorder as low as possible. One thing, uh, one of the chapters you have in there is Not My Kid, and it points out that substance abuse exists in all ethnicities, socioeconomic yeah. groups, and geographic regions of the United States. Why do parents need to accept the truth of that statement? Yes, my, even my kid, the statement. Yes, even my kid. And <laughs> how can doing it lead to better prevention? Just coming to a realization that it can happen to your kid. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I always like to start with the fact that if your kid tries drugs and alcohol, that does not mean, oh my gosh, they're addicted. Actually, uh, the substance use disorder does not happen in everyone. Like I can't moderate my alcohol intake, but my husband is fine. Like he can, and we both have the genetics for it. So keep in mind that if your kids try drugs and alcohol, you know, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going down some terrible path there. You know, most kids are going to be okay. However, if we want to say, oh, it's just those kids or it's just those kids over there, we can't do that because actually we know that, for example, in really high pressure schools, like really high level, high octane, you know, private schools, rates of drug and alcohol use in those environments are really, really high. So there's also, for example, a lot of people want to say, you know, we had like the, the, the crack racially motivated crack dialogue during the 80s, which is, oh my gosh, crack has broken the gateway, a hypothesis that, you know, you have one hit of crack and you're addicted. That was, like I said, very racially motivated and has perpetuated this myth that people of color are more likely to use drugs than, than people who are white. And that is absolutely not true at all, um, especially for certain categories of drug use. Caucasians are actually more likely. We need to sort of clean out the myths and we need to start acting from a place of real information. And the more re real information we as parents have, whether that's on, you know, I mentioned eighth graders. If your eighth grader gets offered a beer and the rejoinder to their no thank you is, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Well, if your eighth grader knows, number one, it is a big deal because their brains are developing. And number two, no, that's not true that everybody's doing it. Only 24.7% of eighth graders admit that they've had more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. And I'm not saying your kid has to say that back to the kid who's offering them a beer, but if in their head they have that information, it gives them the self-efficacy. It gives them the the ammunition they they need in order to feel like, uh, no, I, I, I that person is selling me a bill of goods that's not true. So, you know, I have the information I need in order to reject that. So there are lots of reasons that this information approach is just so important. So there are two types of parenting styles you do mention, and there are many different types of styles, but two of them are authoritative and authoritarian approaches. And mm -hmm. that is one is just I tell, and the other one is more I discuss. Mm -hmm. 
can you break down the importance and you kind yeah. of just, just kind of why it's important to have an authoritative approach that lets parents explain the why, why to have these conversations, why to give that ammunition. Without even needing to get into the, the labels, one is because I said so, because I'm the parent and you'll do what I say, you should automatically respect me because I'm the parent, that sort of approach. And keeping in mind, of course, that we are talking about a spectrum here, right? So when I married my husband, when we had kids, he was of the let's talk about this and get to the why and talk about the motivation. And I pushed very hard against that, even though I love information and evidence. I was like, no, 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 they should just respect our decision. And we've come together to a place of understanding that there's sort of a, a middle road to be had there, right? I have to earn the respect my child has for me. But at a certain point, when it comes to my understanding more about, for example, my husband is a, a physician and a public health expert and a statistician. You know, if he says this thing right here is, here's the data around this, there should be some respect afforded to that simply because he happens to be an expert in that area. But if we are acting from a place of, I am doing what's best for you because I am interested in, in nurturing and helping you grow into the best possible version of yourself. So for example, I can even illustrate this with the fact that before the addiction inoculation, I, I have two kids now 24 and 19. And the 24-year-old was raised under a very different set of rules than the 19-year-old. And the 19-year-old thinks this is supremely unfair, but also knows what I know about the statistics around substance use disorder, that parents that have a consistent and clear message of no, not until your brain is done developing, or no, not until it's legal for you. Those kids have far lower levels of substance use disorder over their lifetime. So if my daughter knows this, and if I were to do anything different, like give her sips at home or do a kegger in the basement and say, well, I'll just take the keys so everyone will be safe, that kind of thing. They're going to do it anyway, so I might as well do it in my basement. If I were to do any of those things, I would be saying, I know what the information is. I know what the data says, and yet I'm going to do what's easier for me. So that sort of leading with the whole, here's the information, here's how your brain works, here's what drugs and alcohol can do to your brain before your brain is done developing – and I have to lead based on the information because speaking of my first book, Gift of Failure, was all about I'm going to do the best I can with the information I have on hand. If I learn new information that helps me change or improve the way I'm doing things, I will then follow that information after saying, I apologize. I thought I was doing the best I could based on the information I had at the time. I have better information now, and I'm going to move forward with that information, which is all we could ever ask for our kids, right? Learn from your mistakes, move forward with from a place of trying to be a better human being and a more informed and good example for our kids. I want to dive into that phrase in the book, alcohol is such a trickster, because it is. You know, it had me thinking about my childhood and how I associated the Just Say No campaign at the time with drugs, but not necessarily right. alcohol even though alcohol is very much a drug. And as you point out, it's often a common... It is the most consumed drug in our country. Yeah, it, it, it does more damage than other drugs. It, it was something that kind of just clicked for me. And I was like, yeah, I did not think about that growing up, that alcohol also was part of that as well as a, as a substance. 
There's so much money that alcohol companies, uh, for example, invest in making us believe that alcohol is about having friends, alcohol is about feeling good, alcohol is about celebrating, and it can be. For some people, this is, uh, you know, that's, it's fine. However, and actually that's fine is a bit of an overstatement because, and I recommend if you're curious about alcohol's effect on the body, on, you know, a cellular, on a molecular level, there's a really great podcast, the Huberman Lab podcast and he's a neuroscientist at Stanford. And he has a couple of episodes of his podcast that are really like essential listening. One is on alcohol and the body. One is on cannabis and the body. One is on nicotine and the body. And I think he has one on caffeine as well, but I I haven't listened to that one yet. And I'm going to grasp my coffee cup here very, very tightly. But the one on alcohol and the body is really... It's really, really interesting because it helps us understand that, you know, alcohol is a carcinogen. Alcohol acts as a poison in our body. And for some people, it's worth it for them to have that trade-off, to feel crappy or raise the risk of some cancers, that kind of thing, in order to have that as part of their experience. And far be it for me to say, no, you can't have that. However, for the developing brain, and that's what the addiction inoculation is all about. I'm not talking about adults. I'm talking about for adolescents and children and adolescents, it is really, really important that they understand that alcohol is a drug, just like all the other stuff. I hate that I have to say in social media posts, drugs and alcohol, because they are all the same thing. Alcohol has killed far more people than the other, all those other substances. So I think it's really important to to put those things together. And like I said, I actually talk about this a little bit in this book, in Addiction Inoculation, I talk about marketing, how much money is spent marketing, especially to kids, even though the companies claim they don't market to kids. We know that, for example, rates of substance use disorder are much higher in certain sports where there's heavy alcohol marketing. They also happen to be sports where there's a lot of high contact sports and sports that often have head injuries associated with them. Interestingly, there's actually the big four are hockey, wrestling, football, and lacrosse are the big four. There's a lot of money involved in kids having brand loyalty from a very young age. And when I say a very young age, you need to understand that kids as young as three can tell the difference between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages if they come from homes where alcohol is consumed. So understanding that our kids are getting messages from a very young age about what alcohol can do for them, it's sort of our responsibility to counterbalance those messages with, here's also what alcohol can do and help them understand that. My kids happen to have grown up with an object lesson. They saw my parents struggle with their alcohol use disorder. They saw my parents relapse and absolutely just obliterate Christmas one year. It was a horrible year. My sister and I did not hide from our children that the root of what killed Christmas that year was booze, that it was my parents' inability to control their relationship with alcohol that made it so that we had to do what was best for them and keep them safe and remove them from the situation, which meant removing them from Christmas, which from that Christmas celebration. And it was devastating. But to keep that from them and not share with them that that was the reason Christmas didn't happen that year was really, really important because that's an example of, oh, okay, that makes it real for me. Again, we're back to the information, honesty, you know, clearing out all of these, oh, if I talk about it, that'll make my kids interested in it. Argument lots of parents have for not having the sex conversation. That's not how this works. Information is good. Information is something that our kids need in order to fully understand what they're dealing with when they are first offered drugs and alcohol. We will take a break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. 
Healing Through the Arts, a wonderful creative program by Arte Gallery and sponsored by Visit Bucks County down in New Hope, Pennsylvania in February, March, and April. Join the team at Arte Gallery and showcase wonderful artists who are healing problems through the arts, whether it's a sickness and illness, miscommunication, barriers on cultural divides or racism and things. Everything is addressed through a creative process. Join us for classes, lectures, and beautiful displays of healing through the arts at Arte Gallery. For more information, log on to artegallery.com. That's A-R-E-T-E gallery.com. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Are you experiencing insomnia, brain fog, hot flashes, mood swings, and more? These are many of the symptoms women experience on a daily basis affecting the health of their brain and increasing the risk for dementias like Alzheimer's disease down the road. A healthy lifestyle can make a big difference for the health of the brain, but Brain Love Health took it further and created an innovative nutritional supplement, especially for women, to support us through this transitional time while also promoting better sleep and long-term brain health. Don't wait any longer to help your brain age well. Why let it deteriorate? The health of your brain is in your hands. To begin protecting it today, visit brainlovehealth.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-L-O-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back on Word of Mom Radio and Girls That Create. And I'm speaking with author and speaker Jessica Leahy. What changes can we do in our parenting to help our kids become more resistant to substance abuse? I know one of the things you mentioned, and I try to all the time with my girls, is enough sleep. <laughs> it can't be stressed enough. Amongst yes, them. yeah, yeah. In addition to making sure your kiddos get enough sleep, what are a couple of other things that we can kind of do to help them be more resistant? It sounds so funny to hear out of context, oh, one of the things that can help protect kids against substance use is more sleep, but there are lots of reasons for that. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. I mean, kids who don't get enough sleep are more prone to depression and lots of other mood disorders, and lots of kids seek out drugs and alcohol in order to not feel the pain of many mood disorders, which then creates this 
self-perpetuating cycle of less sleep because alcohol, while it can help you fall asleep in the short run, actually disturbs your sleep and, and leads to disordered sleep and all that sort of stuff. So then you're even more, it's just this horrible cycle. So as I mentioned before, a clear and consistent message of no, not until your brain is done developing and having conversations around how their brains work and why drugs and alcohol mess with that. And I'm not talking, you, you don't need to become a neuroscientist. I, I try to put the information in the book clearly. I had an editor who's so good at helping me say, nope, too deep, back it up. Nope, too deep, back it up. They don't need to know that. So in a way that, you know, translating that science is the part that I find really fascinating. So that's really important. Clear and consistent message of no, not until it's legal for you. And by the way, the whole letting your kids sip as a way to teach them moderation, that does not work. And a lot of parents do that in service to this myth of, you know, European children, not such a great role model of the European Union as a whole, um, not just the European region. People keep calling me out on that. The European region and the European Union distinctly um, have the highest rates of alcohol consumption in the world and the highest rates of illness and death related to alcohol consumption in the world. So holding Europe up as your end-all be-all sort of example is not a, a great place to go with that. The other thing, you know, as I said, is from very early on, help kids, guide kids through the way their brain works, whether that's kids bashing other kids in the face because they got mad. You're like, okay, well, that's your lower brain. You get mad, you reacting, but how can we sort of think about this and engage our upper brain? And lots of schools are doing that, um, you know, all over the place. I was at a school in Texas called the Momentus Institute where they teach kids in kindergarten about upper brain function and lower brain function so the kids can understand how to sort of try to tap into that upper brain function. And then finally, and I know this question comes up all the time, so I might as well answer it. Lots of people say, well, does that mean that I can't drink in front of my kid? And the answer to that is I would never, unless you have a drug and alcohol issue, unless you have substance use disorder, in which case I'm going to say, yes, please, let's look at your drinking. You can drink in front of your kids, but you need to be really cognizant, really aware of the messaging you're sending about why you're drinking. If you come home from work and you're like, man, today sucked. And I have so many people mad at me for this email I sent out and I need a drink. Or, you know, we're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and there better be a lot of wine there because I'm going to need that to get through this day. That is messaging to kids that when we feel things that are unpleasant to us, we drink in order to numb them. And that is a message that is really problematic. Unfortunately, what the question of whether or not we drink in front of our kids, you have to look at your own motivations, your own messaging, your own habits first. And that's one reason that a lot of parents have trouble engaging with this material. And my job then is to help make this as digestible as possible. And why, you know, I drank for a long time because I have anxiety and it made my anxiety feel better in the short term. In the long term, it exacerbates anxiety. But I completely get why you would drink in order to not feel something because I did it. But in order to be a good role model for my kids, whether or not I'm drinking, I needed to look at that and address that first. So I, I totally get that that can be hard, especially when spouses or caregivers or partners are not on the same page. I get so many emails from people saying, you know, look, either I have substance use disorder and I cannot get my partner 
to help keep me safe. That's a big thing. I work at a rehab, so that's something that I hear a lot. Or, no, 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 my spouse believes that giving them sips is fine and blah, blah, blah. And it's really hard. Unless you're on the same page, it can be really, really tough, which is why I usually recommend that parents at least engage in some discussions away from the kids about sort of what the house rules are. That's why there's a whole chapter called House Rules. And I love that chapter about setting the house rules and being that, again, that direct communication. And I also want to touch on, you mentioned about excessive monitoring may not be the best approach as a parent. I'm going to be in all of your business. I'm going to be looking at every email, every social media thing. And I think that also kind of falls back on gift to failure as well, a little bit of that idea, because from what I took away from the book, that's not the most helpful approach because you should really be just having more of a discussion with them, not trying to monitor every move. Yeah, again, I am not saying you can't monitor your kids. In fact, many, many people will say, you know, kids don't know how to manage, you know, their impulses online and you need to help guide them and all of that sort of stuff. And absolutely. And there is a spectrum. And I'm just asking from a gift of failure perspective, the perspective of uh, we know, for example, that kids who are more controlled by their parents lie to their parents far more often than kids who are given more autonomy. So just from that perspective, you know, I would prefer that my children are honest with me. And so if that's going to help at all, you know, this is a matter of playing the numbers, right? The addiction inoculation, the gift failure, all this stuff. I'm not saying that if you do these three things that your kids will be intrinsically motivated to go to school for the sake of learning and rather than for the sake of the grades and points and scores. I'm just saying that if you give them more autonomy, help them feel more competent and make sure that your connection is deep and true and honest and based on your relationship to them and not some other imaginary kid you wish you were raising, that you can up the chances that your kids will be intrinsically motivated. So again, this is the spectrum. However, lots of quote-unquote parenting experts, lots of people in the field, uh, Lisa Demore, for example, who has a fantastic new book out called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She has written extensively, as have I, on the harm that can be done by monitoring your children too much. And because I'm an educator, I talk a lot about, for example, portals, logging on to check your kids' grades and points and scores 24-7. Again, there's a spectrum here. And I would just love to pull back to a place of sanity and just say that just because we have the ability to do these things does not mean that we should do them. And just because these things exist does not mean that we're bad parents if we don't use these monitoring technologies. I mean, from my perspective, I'm hardcore. I have never read one of my children's emails, texts. I've never, except for one time when we had to find out where my kid had broken down, I have never used Find My iPhone to find them anywhere. However, that rule is always subject to change. If I felt that my children were in danger, if I felt that my child was making a bad decision, if I felt like I needed to, I always have the passwords in case I need them. I think if we could just pull back from this oh, it's my duty as a parent to know where my child is every second of the day. Not only are we undermining the very purpose of adolescence, which is adolescence is a place where kids are supposed to seek out novelty and seek out new experiences and try new things in order to build their competence so they can go out and be adults that can get through the world. We undermine that very function of adolescence when we're on top of them constantly. And if you don't have an exit strategy for that control, we're now seeing a generation of college students who are increasingly unable to be resourceful, solve problems for themselves. They're what my friend Julie Liscott-Hames, who wrote how to raise an adult and your turn how to be an adult she calls these kids existentially impotent they don't know who they are they don't know what they want they have been told what they want they've been told who they are but they don't have this 
internal compass of this is who I am. This is my sense of self. And we need to help kids build that. So monitoring all the controlling behaviors, there's a lot of reasons why that tends to lower kids' uh, motivation to learn, to become, to practice piano, practice soccer, learn math, all of these things. Controlling them more will undermine that goal. And using extrinsic motivators will undermine that goal. So Girls That Create focuses on supporting parents and caregivers of creatives. And I want to dive into something, you know, sometimes the relationship between substance abuse and the ability to be creative. I want to kind of get into that. I think there's a fear of whether creatives kind of fear, can I still be creative if I'm sober? Can I still be creative if I don't have a substance that I've kind of come to rely on as a crutch? And also, you know, in our media, there's been a kind of a romanticizing of the artist's lifestyle with substances shown, and then also, sadly, a focus on the artist's downfall due to addiction, which I feel there's a lot of both of those types of stories all over the place. What are your thoughts on how creativity and substance abuse have intertwined in our culture? Actually, there are a couple of books that I love. There's a book by this woman, Olivia Lang, called The Trip to Echo Spring on Writers and Drinking, and also um, Susan Cheever, who is the daughter of John Cheever. He died from his alcoholism, and she writes a lot about that. In one of her books, Leslie Jameson, who wrote an essay I adore called The Empathy Exams. She has a whole book called The Recovering. It's about being a writer and drinking and all that stuff. There's a long history of this. There's F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway. And in order to, you know, men are real men. And in order to tap into those emotions, they have to take away the inhibitions. And the only way to do that is with whiskey or whatever. However, increasingly, it is becoming okay to not only talk about your own substance use disorder, but to experiment with sobriety just because your own relationship with alcohol or drugs may not rise to the level of, oh, I think I have a problem, but, you know, this just isn't making me feel great. So that whole sober, curious, dry January whole thing has really, I'm so excited about that. But we have great examples of authors and other creatives who have realized that it really has messed with their ability to be the fullest versions of their creative selves, whether that's Macklemore, who just talked about his relapse during COVID. Stephen King writes extensively in his book on writing about the fact that he had a problem with drugs and alcohol well before his conscious brain sort of had tapped into this idea. His unconscious brain was well aware of it and was creating villains and evil things in his books that were based on his relationship with, for example, in the Tommyknockers cocaine or in misery opiates, you know, those kind of monsters or in The Shining, alcohol. All of those monsters really come out in ways that we may not expect. David Sedaris talks about the fact when he got sober, he had to change the time of day that he wrote because he was scared to death. He wouldn't be able to write without the booze. But what he had to do was he used to drink and use weed at night and he would write at night. So he changed his writing time to the morning. And I don't think David Sedaris or Stephen King or Leslie Jameson or any or Macklemore, any of these people have suffered from their lack of, you know, from not using alcohol. Where it's still acceptable, however, seems to be in marijuana culture and in psychedelic culture. And now psychedelics are a, sort of a separate issue for me because there is incredible promise in the research that's being done right now, especially around things like end-of-life care, anxiety, depression, maybe even addiction we're going to see. So I sort of stick those over here and stick a pin in it and sort of we'll come back to this and see uh, incredible research is being done. But there's still that environment along with the legalization of marijuana, of course, that marijuana allows you to open doors of creativity. And for some people that may be true. And for people who 
don't have a problem with marijuana, great. However, I would just like to remind you that in the adolescent brain, chronic users of marijuana have smaller hippocampuses, which is where we do the seat of memory formation in our brain, memory consolidation and memory formation. We see thinning in the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex, chronic users of marijuana. So there is something to be lost, whether that's just your ability to remember the brilliant idea you had while you were high. You know, if it's if it's messing with your memory receptors, you may not even remember that brilliant idea or breakthrough you had in the middle of the night. I happen to be a big fan of the default network in the brain, which is why you have all your best ideas in the shower or on a walk or while you're driving a car. That's where my creativity really kicks in. It Actually, gardening is where my creativity really kicks in. I solve a lot of problems in my writing then. So whatever it is that's allowing your brain to unlock, for some people that may be weed or booze or whatever, but there are other ways as well to to make that happen. And again, in creatives who have decided to get into recovery and stop using without a hit to their creativity, at least in the long run, I think there's plenty of examples out there of people who have said, you know, this is just wreaking havoc, not just on my creativity, but on my ability to handle the other parts of the, if you want to be a successful creative, you're going to have to handle some business. You're going to have to be able to keep appointments. You're going to have to be able to focus and you're going to have to be able to remember things. So I think there is a trade-off to be made there. Absolutely. What are some tips that you have for talking with your kids about substance abuse? How do you start the conversation? What would you recommend? The best substance use prevention programs, the very best ones, the ones that have been looked at by outside evaluators, those start in preschool and kindergarten. And in preschool and kindergarten, they start as healthy stuff, like, you know, why there are some things that we use topically and other things that we can ingest, like toothpaste. You know, we put on our teeth, but we don't swallow it because it can upset our stomach and stuff like that. Or, no, we don't eat the Tide Pods, even though they're colorful and look like candy. Or, yes, that pill may look like candy, but we don't put that in our mouth. That sort of messaging around sort of protecting our bodies from outside chemicals, that's how that messaging starts. And then as a kid gets older, that language and, you know, really, really good substance use prevention programs that are education-based actually have curricula that cross over to home conversations. So, for example, I profile one, for example, that's called Botfin's Life Skills, where they have not just the stuff they talk about at school, they also talk about, here's what we're talking about at school and way to, ways to reinforce that conversation. It's life skills. It's social-emotional learning. It's, you know, getting kids really on top of their pro-social behaviors and developing good relationships. Because we know that big risk factors for substance use disorder are things like social ostracism, academic failure, aggression towards other children. You know, genetics is about 50 to 60 percent of the risk picture, but trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and some of these other things, or other 40 to 50 percent. All of these things start really young, and hopefully as your kid gets older, you'll see opportunities for those conversations, whether that's because... Uncle Ted needs to leave the house in order to smoke at grandma's house during Thanksgiving, and you can have a conversation about smoke and secondhand smoke and va- or vaping or whatever it is. Advertising. I talk in the book about the fact that one of the things I love most about kids is that about adolescents in particular is they hate to be manipulated. So when you can find an opportunity to talk about something like advertising and get them talking about how advertisers attempt to manipulate our wants and needs and all that sort of stuff, like our need for friendship, our need for social interaction. There's a reason that, you know, there are these beer commercials where teenagers are running 
around on the beach and, you know, look gorgeous and have lots of friends and everybody loves each other. We, we crave that belonging. And part of what advertisers are saying is if you drink this beer, you, you will somehow get the promise of this life. But talking to teens about things like, you know, what do you really think they're advertising here? And how are, why are they advertising it to you? Why are we using a cartoon character as opposed to a real human being to advertise this thing? Aren't cartoons for children? That kind of thing. All of these conversations can happen in a developmentally appropriate manner. And they need to start early because the average age of initiation for drugs and alcohol tends to fall in middle school. So if we're waiting until middle school, uh, we're waiting too long. This stuff starts really early with very common sense approaches to, for example, why, you know, is my name on this prescription bottle? Why do you think they would need to put a name on the prescription bottle? If you have the same thing that sickness that I have, why can't you just take my prescription? Having conversations about why it's so important to never take a prescription that doesn't have your name on it, you know, leads to this greater conversation around, for example, opiate misuse. We know that most kids, if they're going to start misusing opiates, it's because they're getting them from their own medicine cabinet or a friend's medicine cabinet. We can address that from a very early age without actually talking about opiates. We can talk about it from the perspective of whatever prescriptions we have in the house. So it, yeah, starts young, got to keep going. It's not just one conversation and it's incorporated into conversations about social emotional learning and self-efficacy and all that kind of great stuff. One thing in the book you mentioned about is uh, gender and the differences between girls mm-hmm. and boys. And I just wanted, because since we focus mainly on raising girls, touch upon why it's important for parents to explain to a girl that their physical reaction to substances will be different than a boy and they need to understand that. Yeah, and of course, again, anytime we talk about gender, we're talking about a massive spectrum and different, you know, all that sort of stuff. I always have to stick that in there. So girls have less of a particular enzyme that helps break alcohol down in the body. So, for example, there's a reason we have different numbers for what constitutes binge drinking in boys versus girls, because boys tend to have more muscle mass, which means more water, which means more ability to break down alcohol more quickly. Boys tend to have the ability to process more alcohol than girls, but that's, you know, just from a body composition perspective. Also, on top of that, we have this enzyme issue where girls are just going to get more drunk than boys, given the same amount, same body composition, that kind of thing. Also, there's this thing called pluralistic ignorance, which is that if I were to ask my son, for example, about how much his friends drink, generally speaking, he's going to overestimate it. And he's also going to overestimate their interest in having alcohol available, for example, at functions, right? Which is a horrible self-fulfilling prophecy for colleges, because that means that colleges just aren't going to offer non-alcoholic gatherings that often because they're going to overestimate how much everyone else is interested in it. What's really fascinating to me about this is that it also means that we are going to, when we overestimate how much other people drink, that has a real impact on our drinking. Boys will tend to raise their level of drinking in order to match what they're perceived, which is often erroneous and overblown, what the perceived amount of drinking is for, for leaders in their community, whether that's a frat president or a soccer team captain or whatever that social leader is. Girls, however, will be less likely to ramp up their drinking, although some girls do. If they're not interested in drinking that much, will tend to socially withdraw, which is a problem too, right? Because we also know, generally speaking, there's a difference between sort of what looks like problematic drinking versus less problematic drinking. People who drink, for example, in college to elevate their happiness, to be a part of a bigger group and share experiences with the group, those people tend 
to have lower rates of substance use disorder when they move out of that college phase. Whereas kids who, who drink because, uh, and they isolate, their drinking happens in isolation, their drinking happens alone, they're drinking to manage emotion, they're drinking to manage depression. Those are the drinkers that we really need to worry about. So when we talk about girls withdrawing socially in order to, to stay away from that or because they don't agree with that or because they don't want to do that, I also worry about that social isolation as well. I talk also in Gift of Failure about other issues with, with uh, girls and self-esteem and girls and feelings of self-worth. And there's all kinds of angles to come at this question. But, you know, and girls, there's statistics that I talk about in the book about women and anxiety. You know, I am not alone in the fact that I drank to manage my anxiety. In fact, women with anxiety are going to be more likely to have problems with their alcohol use than not. So having conversations, in fact, in the education chapter, I profile a girl named Georgia, now a woman named Georgia, who drank for that reason as well. People, you know, took her to the doctor and said she has stomach aches, but never thought to say, is there a possibility she may have anxiety disorder and might we need to talk about that? So there's a lot of reasons that we need to really keep an eye on our girls and how they manage their emotions and how they manage the stress that is on on them, whether in school, life, whatever. If you have someone in your life that you are concerned about, what can you do? What would you recommend if you're kind of thinking something feels off? Maybe I don't, I just, my gut's Mm -hmm. telling me that something's going on. What are the kind of first steps you can do? So if you're, if you're a young person, definitely talk to a trusted adult. Um, you know, I think the problem is, is that, and I, in the chapter about Georgia, I specifically talk about her friends who are essentially propping her up and take going to her, her house and getting her dressed and getting her out the door. And they just couldn't do that anymore. It was just too much for them. And just helping kids remember that they can't fix their friends. You know, none of us can fix the people around us. You know, I got sober before my parents. And after I got sober, there was nothing I wanted more than to be able to control my parents' uh, recovery. And I can't do that. You know, there's sayings for this in recovery and, you know, that whole, you need to worry about the things you can control or you're just going to make yourself sick. So helping kids understand that I think is really important, not just from an alcohol perspective, but from like a mental health perspective. I think most of us have dated someone at one time or another that we kind of thought we could fix and we can't. We can't fix other people. They have to do that. So given that, I think that's a really important conversation to have about relationships in general. But on the other hand, think of people getting to the place where they know they need help as like a 100-piece puzzle. And my dad, on the day he intervened on me and got me to my first recovery meeting, he was my 100th piece. You hardly ever get to be someone's 100th piece. I thought I was someone's 100th piece like a couple of times, and it turns out I was close, but not quite. You can't be someone's 100th piece, or someone can't be someone's 100th piece if pieces one through 99 aren't there. So if I hadn't had all those little people saying, you know, all those people saying something to me along the way, I couldn't have had that 100th piece go into place and have the full picture become completely obvious and you know, unassailable and unignorable anymore. So just remember that the 55th piece is just as important as piece 100. And yeah, you get to feel great about yourself if you're piece 100 and yay, I got that person into recovery and blah, blah, blah. But you're not, you're, you're part of a much bigger picture. And so say something is the very first piece of advice that I can give anyone. And in a non-judgmental, caring and place of love, accusing people, getting angry, you know, it made me very, very angry growing up with a parent who was had substance use disorder, has substance use disorder. 
but anger doesn't work when you're talking to people about getting them help. Um, trying to come from a place of love and not, no judgment um, is going to be really, really important. Jessica Leahy, thank you for this very important talk. I really do <laughs> you're appreciate it. so welcome. Well, and I'm incredibly grateful to you because I know this is a tough conversation. In fact, when I, when I went to my agent with this book and said, you know, whether my publisher buys this book or not, I'm going to figure out a way to make this book happen because I sort of feel like this is the book that I love, Gift to Failure. It's always going to be my baby. But this is the book that I feel like I was born to write that has made all of these experiences really worth it for me and has really been the culmination of all of these experiences and all of the yuck and all that stuff. But it's also a really tough topic. And my agent and my editor, we all knew that going into this. And so, you know, that's the reason, for example, that I publish daily videos on Instagram so that you can learn about this privately. Because going to an event where I'm there speaking and there's lots of other people in the room can be really scary. But I'm willing to meet you wherever you want. You can reach out to me. Uh, my email is teacherleahy at gmail.com. If you want to email me, I'm on Instagram, TikTok, all the places. I'm on all the places with these daily videos. If you want to learn about it. There's like 150 something of them now. Just come learn. And that's all we can ever ask. You know, if we as parents would be willing to just put ourselves out there and learn with an open heart and an open mind, we would all be much better parents. Absolutely. And again, thank you for providing this valuable tool. And we will have all of Jessica's contact information where you can find her online in our show notes. Again, thank you for coming on Girls That Create, and we appreciate you. Thank you so much for being Girls That Create. I think this is such a fantastic forum. I love it. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. We are going to close out with our theme song from Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. Raising kids is hard. Have faith in yourself. She is sure. She is, sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true. She is